Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Janelli, and after a week of moving, my everything hurts. I'm Andrew Weissel, and after a day of data entry, I've got copypastitis. You know, like when your thumb and your pinky get permanently contorted into that Control-C, Control-V thing? I'm Carrie Thomas, and my back hurts, but that's from carrying my team as a healer in Overwatch, so... (laughs) Gotta get those endorsements somehow. (laughs) They actually added a really cool thing, which is called endorsements, which I wish, like, every online game, including MTG Arena, would do, where it's like, you be a civil person in the game and you just get to like instead of reporting other players you get to like thumbs up them so that they and it's a public profile thing so you can know who's a shitlord and who isn't nice i love it well let's go ahead and get started today so the first thing we wanted to talk about is there was a lot of concern in the community that the characterization of jace in dominaria meant a backslide for his character overall but in the what do, what do they call the magic is it just the magic show what do they call that stream weekly mtg but in weekly mtg blake announced that the uh jace we all grew to love on ixalan because jace was not a beloved character before ixalan his character growth is not being sacrificed What happened is Allison and Martha sat down and they both focused on different aspects of his character development. Allison focusing on Jace's joy at seeing Gideon. Martha on Jace recognizing his abuse from Liliana. And the problem is the scenes as they appeared side by side didn't jive quite as well as they they might have to make both of those things apparent in both scenes. It's a high note for us to have any kind of communication on story stuff like this. Imagine if we had this level of communication with, like, any continuity snafu in the past, like Scars of Mirrodin, um, Test of Metal, pretty much anything. Just having communication... Um, for story fans is good, and especially, I mean, it took a lot of outcry here, but I'm happy it came to this, to where they can actually, like, tell us what the deal was. Yeah, I think, uh, rather than making fans wait, what would it be, another four months? To see Jace again, yeah. Yeah, that they addressed it now, it was, was very helpful. Probably would have been more helpful if they addressed it, like, the week after people started growing concerned. But, you know, we'll take what we can get right now. Exactly. It's better than nothing, which is what we've had in the past. (laughs) This is true. So it's it's trending in the right direction, I think. Yep. And this kind of confirms something that I thought was happening behind the scenes with this, is that the decision to have Martha rewrite it so that it better fit the tone of the story she was writing is what caused that dissonance because the the Ixalan story overall is very light and upbeat and sort of comedic and farcical which Allison talked about in an interview I did with her after that story whereas the Dominaria story other than Slimefoot's parts was, was a lot more serious and heavier in tone so It makes sense for that to have been the decision, I think. It's not something we had talked a whole lot about on the podcast. We mostly discussed it on Twitter, um, on our personal accounts. But, uh, you know, like Carrie said, I'm, I'm glad we got some communication about it. When Blake mentioned this on Weekly MTG, that was totally unprompted. So I, I was glad to see him deliver that kind of news in a setting that where he wasn't being directly hounded by the community. <laughs> um, so, so it makes me hopeful for not only communication efforts with Nick and the franchise team and the outside writers going forward, but I think it was a really good moment for weekly MTG itself, which is a new series that, uh, 
Blake does on Thursday afternoons, talking about all kinds of magic things. Should be interesting to see what other story news we can get from that segment in the future. It is a great venue for it, and it looks like they are attempting to use it to engage all Magic fans as much as possible. It'll be interesting to see, now that preview season is over, where they go with it, because a a big chunk of it was dedicated to preview season. They talked this past week with Elena Danner, who's a Magic artist, who's done um, a lot of land art, a lot of landscape art, um, the new standard showdown lands for Corset 2019 are a, a whole piece she's done. So it's actually going to be airing after we record this, but by the time you hear this podcast, you'll have seen it. So hopefully uh, there was some really awesome art chat happening on that episode. So let's move on to talking about Core 2019 previews. We don't have a lot we want to talk about because... During preview season, it was pretty front-loaded. We got all five Elder Dragons the Wednesday we recorded, or by the Wednesday we recorded. So the last three we want to talk about are the trio of Apex of Power, Fraying Omnipotence, and Patient Rebuilding. Yeah, these were uh, triptych pieces in Nicobolus's colors featuring him on Amonkhet at three different stages right around the Mending. So Apex of Power is represents Bolus before the Mending happens at his Apex of Power, conveniently named, on Amonkhet, just wrecking the place. That's when he, he shows up in the Hour of Devastation story 60 years in the past, right during the Mending happening, and just wastes the entire city of Nakdamun in under a day. Frang Omnipotence is the destructive loss of his power as the mending is happening and he's losing his strength you can see he's now unable to hold up like even the fabric of reality is betraying him a very cool lens of the mending because bolus is one of the people who thinks the mending was a not good thing to happen i'll link to a thread uh about that i talked about frank omnipotence kind of in conversation with the mending of dominaria the saga Bolas is not happy with what the mending meant for him. And then patient rebuilding is showing him rebuilding Noctamon after he destroyed it, preparing for his now 60-year plan to regain his lost power. So they took those three cards in the Bolas set and really just kind of condensed what Bolas's whole mastermind arc is about on three cards, which is really good storytelling, and especially for the people who maybe aren't going to read the stories, they still get a sense of Bolas's motivations and that he is working tirelessly since to get his power back. I think that's something Core 2019 does really, really well, is especially through those three cards illustrate that dynamic change for Bolas, and I like that they're all in his colors as well. (laughs) It's also nice that we got, we talked about these a little bit last week, but that we got those kind of pivotal moments of the past for each of these characters and their relationship to Bolas, so I think overall Core 2019 did a really good job of, unlike say Magic 2013, which had a Bolas theme but told you nothing about Bolas, if you were coming into Magic now and wanted to understand why Bolas is the way he is, Core 2019, both through the card set and the story, really illustrates that. This is everything I wanted from the Return of Core sets after we heard that they were going to have a little more meaning when it comes to flavor and, and magic story and Vorthos topics in general. This was a real strong start, and I hope every future Core set lives up to this standard now. Absolutely. So let's move on to listener requests. Uh, If you follow our cast, you might remember we mentioned that we really thought we would be doing a mailbag episode a couple weeks ago. So we're going to get caught up on some of our listener requests today. So the first one comes from Lanawar Elf or uh, A. Sid Barrett on Twitter. Can I please have a request? I'm fascinated by the Thran Empire. Is there more information about the Thran Empire? 
how it thrived and eventually fell? So the answer to that is kind of. Most of what we know about the Thran comes from the novel The Thran. (laughs) It's a good title. Good, strong title. (laughs) It's very descriptive. And it tells us quite a bit about them. They're believers in manifest destiny. They are very hung up on their own sense of innate superiority to the rest of the peoples of Dominaria. They enslave goblins to work dangerous tasks for them. They are all in all very not nice people. So I don't feel, don't feel particularly bad for what happens to them. We don't know how they form, actually. When we encounter them, they have, I think it's like 12 or 13 cities. Do either of you remember? No. <laughs> it's an ebook. You can control F it now. <laughs> yeah. You, you all can look it up. I'm, it's all on the, uh, it should be all be on the wiki as well, along with the names of the, the cities. But that's basically what we knew about them. They're very skilled artificers. And a lot of their civilization was contained to specific points, their cities being hugely developed. But if you get 100 miles outside of the city, you might see a Thran relic in the distance. But, you know, it's not like a plain of Dominaria became a cityscape. The Thran Empire was really centrally located in those cities, as far as we knew. Uh, how it fell? Yogmoth stepped in and took advantage of their desire for. Uh, confirmation of their sense of manifest destiny and own self-importance. He promised them heaven. He convinced the Thran planeswalker Dyfed to find a plane for people suffering from this disease that's basically radiation sickness from power stones called Phthisis. Phthisis? I have no idea how to pronounce it. He led them, led many of the sick ones to Phyrexia, and rather than curing them, he began transforming them into monsters and slowly took over the empire until it fractured. He set off a whole bunch of doomsday weapons, which are basically like nuclear weapons using uh, what are called power stone chargers, and uh, basically wiped their civilization out almost overnight. Uh, they, he retreated through his portal to Phyrexia, and the leftovers of the Thran either reintegrated into normal Dominarian society or uh, became part of Phyrexia. Or they were abandoned on Mercadia, but that's a whole different thing. Yeah, uh, John Bon Jovi actually wrote a song about this. He states that Yogmoth promised him heaven, but then put him through hell. Big hit, you might know, as you give Thran a bad name. <laughs> Oh, how I unironically love Bon Jovi. (laughs) So the next question is, which planeswalkers know which other planeswalkers? And that's from Jean-Simon Bourneval via Twitter DM. This has a surprisingly simple answer because Andrew was intimidated by how long it would take before the cast. The answer is go to the wiki because (laughs) I threw that all in there. I networked all the pages. If you want to know which planeswalkers know each other, then, or have met each other, I guess that's the best way to put it, because there are some really weird corner cases where they know of each other, or one knows of the other, but aside from that, everything's covered on there, so go wild on there. So thanks for the DM, and by the way, we get a lot of awesome questions from listeners, which have inspired projects like this in the past. This is probably one of the more hefty ones that Carrie undertook, though. It was a journey. I was concerned about this question because you could do a whole episode just talking about who knows who. So, yeah, if it's just on the wiki, then that's easy. We actually had a a number of discussions on how best to relate this information in an auditory format But yeah, the easiest answer is to go to the wiki, or there are some great Planeswalker relationship charts out there uh, that you could just Google as well. Uh, It's just, it would take literally like 30 minutes to talk you through all the relationships. There's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) 
you can also do fun degrees of relation with it, which is what my original plan was for. And then I was like, hey, I should map this out anyways. So we do sometimes play, uh, what is it, Six Degrees of Urza? Or which Planeswalker is the one we usually use instead of Kevin Bacon? Well, Teferi was too easy, I thought we decided. Oh yeah, Teferi is just everybody. Like, within two degrees. I can't remember who. Six Degrees you can probably get anywhere to anywhere. There are a lot more actors than there are Planeswalkers. But uh, Teferi was the one we were using. And then Dominara's story happened, and meeting the rest <laughs> of the Gatewatch meant that you could get Teferi to pretty much anyone in the multiverse in like two or three steps. Yes, it's gotten pretty easy. So we, uh, that's a good segue into, we got a number of questions about Teferi and Zalfir. So let's run through them. I don't have the associated asker for all of these because... We got them all over the course of Dominaria and just weren't able to fit them in. So the first one is, why did Teferi and Joyra wait so long to return to Dominaria? The answer is they did not intend to. So Teferi, when they emerge from the phased-out Shiv, is surprised to learn from Freyalise that it's been 300 years. He only intended to stay away, I believe it was a century? About the same time that it took Karn to send the Marari to Dominaria. So they intended to return much, much sooner. But because of uh, the events with the Marari a hundred years after the Phyrexian invasion and the, uh, the Time Rift era coming to be because of the Corona nonsense that went on, uh, it messed with his calculations and they emerged much later than they intended. Honestly, it's for the better. They missed Corona, so if I could just warp out of time and skip Corona stuff, (laughs) that would have been great. It's funny, because that time difference also served to immediately retcon Corona's visiting a number of established characters like Teferi, uh, because one of the first things people say is, oh, didn't you meet with Teferi? Uh, I'm sorry, didn't you meet with Corona? And Teferi is like, no, I've never met her. I And then, you know, categorically denies ever meeting her and thus helping push all of these weird Corona interactions with dead characters like Sarah and Yagmoth out of canon. So it served a, a much better purpose. Yeah, this, the Scorch novel's full of a bunch of BS. <laughs> Corona's the worst. So the next question we got is, does life go on for the phased-out Zelfirans? Or are they frozen in time? So if it works anything like Shiv, we see Joyra and Teferi interacting inside the phased-out Shiv. So time goes on, but it goes on much, much slower, Is was the interpretation that, that I took on. Because they were able to go and round, out, round up uh, a couple volunteers to come out and help on the outside of the phased uh, space. Presumably with enough power, one could planeswalk into the phased-out Zelfir, since they could planeswalk out of the phased-out Shiv, but we will probably never know. But the answer is yes, time goes on, but very, very slowly, or, or weirdly, we should say. It's not clear exactly how they experience things. It's wibbly-wobbly. Timey-wimey. So, next question is, could phasing Zalfir back bring Phyrexians with it? And that's from Darren Brown or Darksteel Spork, which is like, that sounds like a very handy spork. The answer to that is, it would really depend on what the story wanted. I doubt they would go that route after establishing New Phyrexia as the big threat to the multiverse. And Zalfir was deliberately phased out as the Phyrexians were invading. So it's possible there's like a Phyrexian sleeper agent or uh, like a few Phyrexians in the phased out time bubble, but not enough that it would be a serious concern. And glistening oil on Dominaria seems to have been rendered relatively inert thanks to the legacy weapon. And I doubt they're going to bring that whole thing back as well. Yeah, that's a a tricky spot in speculating that people kind of forget about is that you can look at things in magic's past to determine what is potentially possible 
but you also have to think about storytelling goals and opportunities and think about what's probable or what's what's interesting like we've had so many stories with Frexanes on Dominaria and there's just not a lot of dramatic weight to having more Frexians on Dominaria, which is why yeah. we didn't see any in this past set. And Wizards spent two whole blocks building the Frexians up on Mirrodin and reestablishing them and redefining what they're about. And we even still have that third faction of Frexians from Elspeth's home plane that we know nothing about. Like, it's a situation where if they wanted to write Frexians into a phased-out Zalfir, there's nothing in the canon that really precludes that. But the way they've developed Frexians since, really, it doesn't make a lot of storytelling sense for them to put Frexians back into Zalfir like that. So I just remembered something else, in that once Yogmoth was defeated, the remaining Phyrexians all fell over and died like they were a droid army on Naboo when the Trade Federation ship got blown up. So there's also kind of that trope where you kill the big bad and all the little bads die along with him to tie things up in a neat bow because there's still enough Phyrexians to slaughter everybody even after you killed Yogmoth. So even if those Phyrexians came back, they were metaphysically connected to Yagmoth in a way that makes it unlikely that they would be continuing to function once phased back in. Alright, so the next question is, what did Teferi do to earn his title Hero of Dominaria? And that is from our good friend Justin at the Lorgoifs. The answer is the bare minimum. <laughs> so Teferi did work for a very long time to fight the Phyrexians. He, in especially in the more recent Dominaria stories, the flashback story especially, where he reflects that he believed he was doing the right thing by phasing out Zalfir, which Urza had intended to use as a sacrificial pawn in his game against Phyrexia. Because if you look at what happened to Benalia, and specifically Benalia City, the Phyrexians overwhelmed and destroyed it, and Urza response was to pretend to be a beggar and spout crazy nonsense to make it seem like the Phyrexian invasion was just a a hoax or like you know he was he was playing the end is nigh card but rather than appearing as a you know all-powerful planeswalker warning them he appeared in the guise of a, a crazy old man is there a difference between those probably not <laughs> well, s s some premending planeswalkers were crazy old women. This is true. Uh, well, they could be—they could really be either. They could be whatever they wanted to be. That's fair. So they're just crazy and old. Teferi was trying to prevent a similar fate for his home. I think his title, Hero of Dominaria, mostly refers to his role in the mending. The Jamurans aren't too high on what he did to Zalfir, but they still did put him in that carved wooden monument on the Mending of Dominaria art, because honestly, he fled the Phyrexian invasion, barely helped stop the Mirage War, which all started because of his experiments. I mean, he could have just used his pre-Mending Planeswalker powers and ended that thing, but decided to send cryptic dreams to a bunch of heroes and have them do it instead. <laughs> yeah. Very, very not helpful. So what I would say is he did stop the Keldon invasion of Jamora. So he was, until I would say he phased out Zalfir and never phased it back in, he was pretty widely regarded as a heroic figure on Jamora, at least, especially in Zalfir, where he was basically their Merlin. So let's move on to why don't basic lands have flavor text? I'm going to turn that over to our Mel. What, me? That's you, Andrew, yeah. Oh, well, because play new players learn what basic lands are and what they do a hell of a lot better with the big mana symbol. There's been a lot of discussion about full text basic lands or bringing back text on basic lands, but having the big mana symbol really sets them apart, so there's just no flavor text on there. So there you go, Robbie MTG. I would imagine as well, part of the reason is because it doesn't have rules text, 
flavor text might be confusing for the most basic land. Now, there are commons that, uh, vanilla commons that have flavor text, but on lands, uh, it just seems weird. Basic lands just occupy a special place. They they are they are a special and f- fundamental and foundational game piece in Magic, and the look that they have now, other than you know the full art basics, which still do have a mana symbol down at the bottom anyway. Wizards has done all kinds of testing and has all kinds of research into what the best basic land layout is, and the big mana symbol is what works best. So. They're sticking with that. So let's move on to our last question for today. What Planeswalkers do you predict for Commander 2018? A return with Tevish Zat, Sarah, Ramaz, or your favorite, dot dot dot, Commodore Guff? And that's from Joshua Swope. And I apologize, Joshua, if I mispronounced your last name. I'm a monster. I mispronounce everything. I apologize. So, Carrie, do you want to lead with your speculation? I know Andrew can't comment on this, but I think we're all in agreement that Sarah seems like a shoe-in. Oh, yeah. As far as being set up from M25 through Dominaria. And Core 2019, yeah. Yes, it would top off the year perfectly to have Sarah there. If they wanted to stay within the era of Sarah, the Sarah era, if you will, (laughs) they could... I mean, it's pretty much just pre-mending slash comics era, there's a lot of characters that are in demand from there. Leshrac, Tevishzat, um, as you noted in the question, I think those have the most potential. It really depends on how you color balance it, but my hopeful guess would be it top that four off with Faraz. Faraz was Sarah's, I believe, husband in the series, but he is just a very, very unique take on a green planeswalker. Well, green, probably blue, but green planeswalker, where he just let things happen with regards to animals attacking and didn't want Sarah to like kill a giant spider because it was just doing its own. It was, it was the nature of the thing, and Sarah shouldn't blame it for just doing what it does. And those are like his dying words or whatever. Yeah, he just gets to. A kind of unseen part of green, which is just like kind of letting nature have its way without actively interfering or buffing it. So I'd be excited for that lineup is the TLDR. So I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to also see Urza, especially after Urza appeared in the Unset last year, getting a real Urza shortly after the joke Urza would delight a lot of people. I'm just going to be very sad if he has green in his color pie, but whatever. I would be surprised. My personal holdout, though, is going to be Crucius because I have an irrational love for the statue, (laughs) (laughs) for the Ethereum statue in the middle of an island where Tezzeret defeats uh, Nicol Bolas. Yep, that, that that all happened. Maybe. Who knows? It, there's clockworking involved, which is this weird time travel thing. But anyway, Crucius, uh, the mad who brought Ethereum to Esper in an attempt to somehow realign the Alaran shards. It didn't work out too well, and he disappeared. And if Test of Metal is canon, we know what happened to him, but there are a lot of things indicating Test of Metal is not canon. So I would love to see a Crucius, but for some reason, I don't think an Artifact Matters Planeswalker like Crucius that could appear in four colors would outweigh or or somehow beat out Urza, who would appear in those same colors and also care about artifacts. Yeah, I agree. I would also, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but we did see the Planeswalker poster that is for sale at a couple retailers, as far as we know, including on Amazon, um, that does have new art for some Planeswalkers. I won't dig into that too much. Andrew Weissel on Twitter, I think some of you might know him. Um, he has a whole thread dedicated to looking and examining the arts that are on that poster. You know, we forgot to bring that up in the news segment. 
I think we don't necessarily want to spoil people if they don't want to know, because it includes basically what would probably be the Ravnica Planeswalkers as well. But our idea for the other five that Andrew talks about was that they are probably going to be the San Diego Comic-Con promos that they have every year. Which I thought was a little weird, because having a shirtless Tibble just handing out at a convention. <laughs> kind of it's what the fans want, Carrie. It's what the fans want, exactly. <laughs> I'll link that thread. It's there's We can't draw a lot of conclusions from the poster, but it is interesting. So it might be spoilers, it might be not. I don't... There's just no way to evaluate what the poster even means. But it's not like a leak or anything. It's a publicly released product, so Wizards put it out there deliberately at this time of the year, so... My favorite one was the the promo Sarkon that was just cuddling that female dragon. Yeah, I thought a little ominous in reference to last week's discussion, but, you know... <laughs> Uh, for clarity, we're totally making up the ones we're talking about right now. To protect the integrity of the cast, Sarkin did it with Lathless. Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Just look at the whelp. It's Sarkin's. Yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. 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 Sarkin getting it on. Let's talk about Chronicle of Bolas. Things Unseen. So this kind of continues from last week where there was not a whole lot of meaty lore, but there was, it was a very good story, a very great character, uh, continuing the very great character piece of both Ugin and Nicol Bolas. So it picks up where last week uh, left off, where the Ojutai dragon has caught up with Yasova's group and Taijin, the former Jeskai monk who was relating the story to them last week. So I thought they would have to come up with a new way of continuing the story. But it turns out, Yasova orders the Ojutai dragon killed. So they fight it a little bit. They don't get very far, but an Atarka dragon, who was also stalking them, sees the Ojutai dragon and fights it. And so they all escape in the chaos of that dragon battle. So they escape with Taijin. And Yasova asks Taijin to continue his story, so that was our framing device for this week. Likely next week we will see the same framing device, uh, because Taijin does not die this episode. Which is good, because I mentioned last week it was going to get a little weird if, like, random people keep popping up to relate visions to them. In the past, uh, we left Nickel leaving without Ugin for the first time from Arcades Sabath's little civilization. Ugin decides to follow. He gets attacked by Vivectus Asmadi and uses twin the twin globes of light he learned from Tejuki, I think is the name of the the old wise woman that he's been learning magic from. So the the line for this is great. It's so I reached into my tiny arsenal of magic tricks and spun a pair of transparent Feather-like globes out of the nexus of colors and into the air. What's neat about this is it it relates to to a couple things. It seems a little bit like the beginnings of Ugin's morph magic, which if you look at the morph token... Manifest magic. Ma well, a little bit of both. The morph magic specifically because it's all spinning light. Yeah. Whether or not it's manifest. Manifest magic. <laughs> True, okay. It all does Manifest is the, the Ugin's magic. Morph and Megamorph are what the denizens of Tarkir did with it later. True, that's fair. What is also interesting is that he talks about spinning them out of the nexus of colors. This is very early in Dominaria for color theory in magic, but the idea that he's spinning it out of the nexus of colors makes it feel like Ugin can use more than just one color of magic and recognizes that he's using more than one color. And all of his character up until this point has shown him embracing like the greater web of life and death and everything. So this is probably where we're we're approaching his transcendence. If not now, this is the the beginnings of that for him. Or just the way he observes and interacts with the world that he has the kind of mindset that has always transcended color, which I, I think is sounding 
more like what is happening. Not that he, you know, was a character associated with colors who later became colorless. It sounds like the transcend color is kind of something that has been built into him from the beginning. Yeah, back in that first episode, his very first thoughts outside of the material realm is just like, what's beyond the sky? And that is who Ugin is to the core. We also learn that Asmadi and all his five siblings have matching crests, which was pretty interesting because we know Ugin, Bolas, and Palladium Moors all have very similar body types and horns. Chromium and Arcades Sabath don't quite match the pattern, but it's just an interesting reference on the I don't think taxonomy is the right word. Maybe just the the physiology of the different dragon broods and relating it to the Tarkiran dragons who have very similar... Identifiable morphologies. Thank you, morphology. Yeah, this was interesting. And like, I wonder if these are Vevictus's spawn of some sort or if like his chaos magic ability from his card spawned them out of things or if they just happen to be other dragons that have similar markings because they're from the same elder brood that he's from that was my thought when they named mm-hmm. five that isn't clarified but it's interesting because we know Vevictus Asmati is from you know is referred to as a cousin so he wasn't part of that initial clutch of eggs that fell from the Ur-Dragon it's especially interesting because later the Atarka dragon refers to the Ojutai dragon as cousin as well. Uh, I also think it's really funny that this little magical globe thing he does is basically nothing, but it freaks Vevictus out and he gets so confused <laughs> and like tries to halt midair and falls head over tail. <laughs> He's like, yeah, the, the, the spinny balls of light come at him and he has no idea what it is. <laughs> and then, you know, so Ugin is long gone by the time it finally hits Asmadi, and when it hits him, it just, like, pops out like like a bubble. This reminds me of, actually, Dak Faden's magic in the IDW comics is very oh, yeah. similar. He just conjures the globes of light and then just tosses them and runs, <laughs> which is <laughs> tried and true to escape strategy. That's true, and Dak is one of my favorite planeswalkers. But yeah, when we first... When you see him in the past, he loves using those orbs of light. And you can even see them uh, a little more damaging in his Electrolyze promo, uh, which he's using against zombies. Moving on, Bolas and Ugin travel together. They run back into Palladium Moors. Palladia steals their kill once again because they infringe on her territory, which is everything surrounding their birth mountain. What's interesting is we finally learn what Bolas did to make that one brother kill the other brother. Bolas wants to attack Palladium Moors. Ugin refuses, and so Ugin describes Bolas doing this. He blinked once and then a second time, more slowly, and for an instant I thought his eyes turned in lazy circles that spun my thoughts around and around. Maybe it was time to confront one of our siblings directly. I shook myself free of the irritating distraction, clawing a gouge in the soil with impatience. So it sounds like Bolas is also experimenting with magic, but he's experimenting with mind control. Slave of Bolas. Yeah. I mean, it's a very Bolas thing. Slave of Bolas. What's the one where he takes <laughs> the one we previewed? <laughs> I can't remember the name. In Bolas' clutches. clutches. Yeah, stealing We're stuff. We're never is... getting a preview again after that comment. You know, the card we previewed, that's... One of the best limited cards in Dominaria that has a very memorable name because it's legendary and has story art and is a story spotlight. That card you can't remember? Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah. And Bolas's minus ability on his Planeswalker card in mm-hmm. Conflux. Yep. His, his original card. Yeah, so con- taking control of people is very much a Bolas thing, and this is a very flavorful way of showing it. Ugin doesn't realize at the time that what Bolas just tried to do. So together they head back to their birth mountain and find the Dragon Hunters, which are that original group of humans who killed their sister, Moravia Saul. And it looks like the power structure of those humans are now surrounding 
dragon killers. So you see all these different little settlements, all with the dominant longhouse seeming to be the one with like dragons emblazoned on it in some way. Bolas shows Ugin their main settlement, where that longhouse has their sister's skull lashed to a pole in the front, and then her rib cage is lashed to poles on the side of the building to make this kind of cage structure around it. Also remember that it's been years and years and years that they've been gone now, so this one dragon-slaying event has ended up influencing this entire culture that's built up around this mountain, which I think is really fascinating. And they are obsessed with taking dragons' powers, so they have these, what do you call the giant crossbows? I, f- I forget the Ballistas. name. Ballistas? Ballistas, yes. So they shoot these ballistas at Ugin and Bolas, and Ugin takes a clip of it from it, but it contains a, a poison, so they have to land on a mountaintop afterwards. And what's interesting about the people is that as Ugin's blood drips down, they try and catch it, and like Ugin mentions that like each droplet is like the size of a person, and this one person ends up standing directly under one and gets bathed in his blood, and all of a sudden starts raising their weapon and chanting, and all the people around them start bowing down to them, because now I guess they're like the one blessed by the dragon's blood. And the drops that land in the dirt, people like jump around and start scooping it up, eating the dirt, trying to just like take in the dragon blood because they, they're dragon killers now. It's like really, if you're a dragon, that's really terrifying. No wonder Bolas is scared of these people. Yeah, <laughs> but don't tell him that. Bolas says he has a plan for revenge, which we don't get to see, but I assume will be next week. And I assume it's going to be bloody, and I assume it's going to involve some of this newfound magic that Bolas has quote-unquote discovered, because he hasn't really discovered it. He discovered it for himself, which is the other really interesting thing, is that Ugin tries to tell Bolas that the dragons that are probably on other continents, because he knows about other continents too, Bolas tries to be all, well, actually, did you know there's other lands across the ocean? And Ugin is like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> and Bolas <laughs> is like really upset about it because he's like the worst kind of, well, actually, internet user. <laughs> That's so perfect. Bolas is like, and there's other dragons there too. And Ugin's like, yeah, but they might actually be older than us. And Bolas is, like, super angry and asserts that, like, no, they're the first. Like, he won't cede that he might not be the oldest, most powerful being on the plane. Even though he straight up knows he is not the firstborn of his brood, and that clutch of elder dragons is, are not the first living sapient civilization that exists on the plane. Which is very bolus, because he doesn't like to share. Like, he is very quickly forming these megalomaniacal ideas and inflated sense of self. I think back to the card, The Eldest Reborn. It's a great name because it slips the elder in there because Bolas is an elder dragon. But it also plays to the kind of misinterpreting of history that Black had as a theme in Dominaria. Because we now know that Bolas is not the eldest. He is not even the eldest eldest dragon, and the eldest dragons weren't on the plane first. Which is contrary to what he's said in the past. Right, like he's he's made claims about all kinds of things about his age and power and whatnot, and he's just kind of BSing it to seem more impressive. It's a very nice touch. He knows nobody alive who can fact check him, though. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't know Ugin's alive, so there you go. (laughs) I covered my bases. He said something at a party once, and Ugin went, hey, that didn't happen. And Bolas was like, he's gonna die now. Yeah, they they were at a party, and Ugin just followed Bolas around, shouting, citation needed, after everything he said. (laughs) So Yasova cuts off the story. She's concerned about something. What, we'll talk about in a second. The Atarka dragon returns victorious over the Ojutai dragon, only to attempt to kill Taijin itself because 
It learned from the Ojitai dragon that Taijin was a ghost fire warrior, a dragon killer. So Taijin does this awesome, like, Power Rangers-esque move where he summons a invisible laser sword in his hand, which is the ghost fire blade, and basically runs underneath the Atarka dragon and, like, slices it from head to tail as everyone else attacks the dragon as well. At the end, once the Atarka dragon is run off, is, was it run off or killed? I it's don't remember. killed. Face tap it through the brain. Afterwards, Yosofa questions how Taijin even exists, because if you remember back to Kanfall, Shu Yun, in order to prevent the death of his entire people, negotiates with Ojutai, where Ojutai essentially says, I can't suffer any dragon killers to live. And so Shu Yun sacrifices himself and the other ghost fire warriors to preserve the Jeskai people, who become the Ojutai people. All of that is fairly interesting. So the first thing we should talk about is, what is troubling Yasova about this story that she cuts it off? Is it the idea of a culture of dragon hunters? Is it Bolus's mental manipulation, possibly relating to how she ended up turning against Ugin? That sounds likely. Because last week, there was the implication that she was not going to like this story because it started to deal with Bolus's ability to manipulate minds for his own nefarious plans. And it was strongly implied that she still feels really bad about being instrumental in Ugin's death. Yeah. Especially manipulating humans. Yes. Which is what is like the cliffhanger for this, is that he's going to put some skills to use. So I think that does make make a lot of sense. How much longer do you think this particular frame story <laughs> can go? That's what I was, I was going to ask you guys this question independently of last week's, because I was like, you know what, this is the third one. What I genuinely think is next week is the end of the Tarkir framing. We will hear the finale and whatever happens with the Elder Dragon War, and it'll cut off. And then we will go to Tezzeret's point of view, and it will be Tezzeret explaining it to, say, Ral Zarek, who he was ordered to go retrieve um, at that time. We will hear Tezzeret telling Ral about possibly the Consortium, and how he was able to take over it, and how the downfall and Bolas's reclamation of him, and probably even his ignition before that, but we want to focus on Bolas with this story. And then we can hear about Scars of Mirrodin, we can hear about Kaladesh, and we can hear about Amonkhet and Ravnica and what those plans are. We know that Tezzeret is involved in this thanks to that article from Ethan, so looking forward to it. Yeah, the choice was deliberate to focus on Tezzeret because Tezzeret has been involved in Bolus's plans the longest that we know of, of the Planeswalkers, and knows it fairly intimately because he's literally part of it, because he put the planar bridge inside him. Do you have any thoughts, Andrew? I don't know if it'll stop at four episodes or what the cutoff is going to be, but I think it's going to have to switch at some point, or or depart and then come back later. I don't know. Yeah, they're just like, they're only a few days walk from Ugin's grave, so something has to happen there. There was not a specific cliffhanger like last time where the story has to literally pick up at the same moment so we could just start with them at the crucible of the spirit dragon well, or but whatever Tejin hasn't finished this story yet so there's there's still another Tejin part at least and then i think when they get to ugin's grave i think there's gonna be you know because they mentioned in the story that ugin's spirit might finally be finding strength to reach out so i think the cap of the Tarkir framing story is going to be them getting part of this past told directly from Ugin himself. So what if this also part of this reaching out is him being able to linger around Tarkir until he can find a planeswalker who's igniting? Could be. I mean, we don't really need any more explanation for Ugin's ties to Sarkin individually, but... It could also be a good bridge for getting Ugin's essence into Sarkin 
and then having Sarkin bridge to Bolas or Tezzeret. Again, I'm already evolving on what I said. This is what (laughs) happened last week. That's an interesting note, because that brings us to the last question I initially wrote, but I I have two more questions. So the first one is, how does Taijin still exist? So I think that's going on what you were saying, Carrie. I wonder if being on Tarkir, they're going to play with the... I don't know if they would play with the alternate Tarkir at all, but if they're going to hint that there was a world where the Khans had survived, because Taijin is this ghostfire warrior who should have been slaughtered. So of course it could just be he he ran off and hid, but or he hid like they hide their shamans. But that doesn't sound nearly as exciting. Yeah, just more hide and seek, isn't it? Why do you two think Taijin still exists? The story is titled Things Unseen. Timur shamans refer to the unwritten now, which is kind of the alternate realities that they were able to sense in Sarkin's version of Tarkir. He ends up going on his whole dragon quest because he abandons the Mardu Horde and meets with Timur shamans and communes with dragons of Tarkir's past, which presumably is Ugin. And Ugin doesn't remember any of this because he's mostly dead at this time, so this all seems to be sub-subconscious Ugin stuff, if it does take that path. The idea that Taijin is kind of pulled from this alternate timeline is interesting. I don't want to put any more timey-wimey stuff onto Tarkir. It's already confusing enough, yeah. I would be a little eh about it if that's the reason he escaped. It works, I guess. It would be kind of neat, but kind of eh at the same time, if if you kind of understand what I mean. For those listening and who may not be intimately familiar with it, Tarkir is one of the most confusing blocks for readers, especially casual readers, because despite Wizards of the Coast literally putting a bulleted list of what did and did not happen thanks to the time travel shenanigans, people are still confused about it four years later. And I mean, reasonably so, because if you've only read about Tarkir and didn't see that particular article, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was deliberately set up as a closed loop. And time travel stories are inherently confusing, especially when they deal with alternate realities, because you have two whole world sets of characters and events that happen in parallel that you have to keep separate, which is hard because they're related, and that is very tricky with the way brains kind of recall things. If you're confused about Tarkir, don't feel bad. It's very easy to be so. Yeah, for real. Carrie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? before I get my last question. It would be interesting in the context of what we touched on last week, which was threads for returning to, not cons, but returning to humans, kind of rebelling against the dragons and the dragon lords. If you dragged a few people from the not current time into the current time, as specific seeds of information and dissent against the dragon lords. And even if it was millennia ago, they can obviously still have impact. Like, Shu Yun had an impact. Yosova is obviously set up to have an impact hiding the dragon claw. It'll be interesting to see if Taijin ends up being yet another plant for a return to the Tarkir that was more popular with fans. Wink, wink. Like, that's what that is to it. So so that, uh, you actually already hit some of what I was thinking with this next question. The last question that we haven't really pondered yet is, why is Yasova being sent all of this from Ugin? What does Ugin, hidden in his cocoon, want from Yasova, consciously or unconsciously? Because he's already been to the future, and he's got to do something about Yasova and Marty's kids. <laughs> All right, I, lo- I love that one. I love that one. So my thought was along the lines of what Carrie was just talking about, which is specifically to help reignite the sparks for humanity. 
where they are not basically to reignite the the balance between cons and dragons and preserve the cons traditions for an inevitable return to Tarkir where we will hopefully see the wedge cons return since they were the popular ones. Yeah, that's what I'm banking on is that we know that cons of Tarkir as a structure was more popular than dragons of Tarkir ended up being. While Sarkin loves his dragons, there is going to be probably a new balance struck on the plane in coming years. But again, this could all be red herrings. We got a lot of these kind of interlude stories regarding Innistrad in the time away. We had the one about... Oh, that's true. What's his name finding the Lunark's journal? I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure the story was simply called the Lunark's journal. And it was all about how he could have exposed the Avicinian church for the kind of corrupt structure that it is. But instead it just was like this isolated story about faith where this person didn't whistle blow on Soren Markov having created this to harvest humans. So I think that's an example of them seeding stories, and it's very clear church strife was going to be a theme of the next Innistrad that they wanted to tackle. They just went a different direction from that particular seed. Yeah, and like we already saw in Dragons of Tarkir that remnants of the old Khan structures had still persisted. There was, um, oh, the mythic rare manador, Shaman of the Ancient Ways or something. The one that was surely going to get banned in Commander, I remember. Yeah. I mean, it confirms not only has did we just learn that Yasova's hidden the Dragonclaw staff away, but that there are, even a thousand years later, still Whisperers up in Kelsisma. Narset discovers Shuyun's old text. Sidisi's still planning to usurp Silumgar at some point. She's storing vials of poisons in her chest cavity, because she's a zombie now, which is fun. And Offensa's still a ghost out in the desert. Tarkir's already primed for a rebalancing between the uh, cons and dragons. So my final thoughts for today are, this story would be really lame if Ugin just wanted to tell Yasova a story. So I hope that we have not spent all of these words on this framing story as an excuse to tell this past story that could have been told without the frame. So I really hope the Yasova framing story pays off when they finally meet Ugin. Andrew, what are your last thoughts? I don't have any, as per usual. <laughs> That's fine, we got them all out. Carrie, any last thoughts? Arcades, Palladia, Bolas, Ugin, Chromium. And then there was one dead dragon on the ground, right? There were two. It was, it was there were two. seven eggs... Two dead dragons, and then Ugin and Bolas hatched Bolas from one. shared from one. So what were the color alignments of the other ones? Black, because they're dead. <laughs> I mean, that's, that was my genuine question, because I was thinking, like, you can't complete a cycle, so I'm pretty sure there's somebody... I despise cycles. That was most active in the beginning of my magic sense, when RTR and Theros and Tarkir kind of just like overloaded us with like 15 cycles per block so yeah well rtr was all cycles and uh theros was when they started doing the signpost on commons it's a good time i loved it oh, i love signpost on commons that was my thought in all seriousness carrie how about one of the dead ones was five colors please one I of the hate these i hate these explanations so much <laughs> was vivectus's colors was the vivectus's colors and then you had five shards, the five color, and the colorless. This is like people who were crying about what color the lost gods were on Amenket before. Because oh, no. yeah. it couldn't be balanced. There couldn't have been a five color one, an uncolorless one, and then like whatever else. Because there was still one extra. There's a simple solution to this, right? The two dead dragons and the three other gods on Amenket were all the same color. Yes, 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 yes. They were the purple-aligned individuals. This is this is my favorite. Oh, I thought you were going to say they were all part of a five-color cycle independently, but across planes, that'd be worse. 
So in all seriousness, I do love the asymmetry of cycles they've started introducing. Asymmetrical cycles, but still like color balance, uh, especially on like Ixalan was, was very interesting and led to a lot of unique things that we wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah, as a Mel, Ixalan was fascinating, having four factions, two in two colors and two in three colors. That was really interesting. I think it worked on Ixalan because they gave the dinosaurs and the pirates, which are the two tribes that needed the most cards, more colors so that they would just have a higher Asfan in packs. Whereas Vampires and Merfolk have had so much support over the years that they didn't need the extra color and the extra boost. But that's neither here nor there. All right. With all of that, this has been the Vorthos Cast. Thank you for listening.